welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where political communication theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. Today's podcast is all about the high-choice media environment, and my guest is Jane Letvinenko, a reporter with BuzzFeed. Jane, can you please tell us a little bit about your background? Hey, sure. Um, Thanks for having me. So... Aside from being a communications grad uh, from the University of Ottawa, um, (laughs) I'm also a reporter with BuzzFeed News, uh, where I focus on disinformation and online investigations. And since November 2016, um, we've been looking a lot at online ecosystems and how they're used for uh, false messaging or how they're manipulated. Um, as it is in some cases. Uh, So uh, a lot of the messaging that we come across is political messaging. All right, so today we're going to talk about the high-choice media environment. Is it something you've heard of before? It's not. Tell me. Perfect. All right, so to talk about the high-choice media environment, we kind of have to start with the idea of a media environment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you already mentioned ecosystem, and so... In media studies and political communication theory, sometimes the term ecosystem and media environment are actually used interchangeably. It's this idea of like the system in which political information and news is created and shared and consumed. Right. So it's it's essentially like the places where you look for information. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because when media studies started, we had this idea of a political information environment or a media environment, and we really only focused on supply. We were like, what are the journalists creating? How many news stations are there? How many radio stations are there? And we really were very focused on who was producing the content. And it's only been recently, really since the internet became such a common tool for accessing political information that we were like, oh, what people want to do and what people want to consume is actually a pretty important part of this puzzle. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what's the crux of this theory? So at the, at the core, we've got this idea of supply and demand of political information. And this idea that we have to look at both how much content is created and what kind of content is created and the structures that are uh, designed in terms of like who can access it and who can't, but then also what people actually would like to consume, right? We can have all of the news in the world being consumed. If people are like, yeah, but I like cat videos, then we're going to have just a bunch of people watching cat videos. And that's where we get to this high choice component because we're seeing with the accessibility of different kinds of political information across a bunch of different platforms, all of these choices people have to make in terms of when they're going to consume political information, if they're going to consume it ever, and what kind and how much. And on the supply side, we also see journalists and campaigns and activists all having to think about, okay, well, what message am I going to send out and how am I going to send out it out and which platforms resonate with which communities. And so there's all of these choices that become really integral to this system of political information. I think that's a really interesting idea, especially um, considering that our communication is much more platform-based now than even five, 10 years ago. So I like the idea that this is sort of looking at um, 
sort of it's trying to explain how social media might play into the media environment ecosystem rather than a more one directional you know more more uh one-sided forms of media yeah totally and it's kind of connected to the idea of of user-generated content. So as social media became popular, uh, and even before social media platforms really became popular, there was, oh, everyone can have their own website. Everyone can have their own blog. Everyone gets Mm -hmm. to create all of this information. And so this sort of ability to engage in the media system is something that we didn't really see, but we are seeing it now. And it means that people have to make a lot more choices when they're consuming information. So is the high volume part sort of the part that nods to the amount of choice that's available? It's the amount of choice that's available. And in my own research, that's the thing that I find really fascinating. I think a lot about, are we potentially creating inequalities of political knowledge in this kind of media environment? Are we creating a system or do we have a system that's already been created where people can choose the cat videos instead of news, but the people who really, really love political information, they're going to read all of the news from all of the perspectives they can find, and they're going to be looking at the meme groups, and they're going to be on Reddit chatting about it, and they're going to be on Twitter yelling about it, right? Like, there are people who are going to opt in, but the high-choice media environment might create a system where it's really easy to opt out also. And then if we have, in our democratic society, a bunch of people who are hyper-informed, and then a bunch of people who are like, no, I'm taking a picture of my food instead, then we might have a problem on election days when people who aren't informed have to go vote and people who are very, very informed are voting based on a different set of information. But this idea of of high-choice media environment isn't just about the choices people are going to make in terms of, I have all of these different kinds of content, what am I going to pick? It's also about you know, which channels of communication am I going to use? Am I going to make use of my favorite social media? Am I going to make use of search engines? Am I going to subscribe to a newspaper or a magazine? Am I going to turn the radio on? There's those kinds of choices as well. And then that's the demand side that we talked about. The supply side is also a host of new choices, right? I mean, I imagine BuzzFeed specifically is, has kind of an interesting perspective on this because it wasn't an organization that started as you know a print newspaper um, that then had to figure out online. You guys were online first, and so you think about the choices that you've made to be online first and only online and the kinds of tools you might use to connect with different communities and build an audience. I suspect that there's a bunch of choices that uh, you guys have had to make because there's just all of these options. And I kind of wanted to use this to maybe jump into a question for you. When you're developing your stories and doing your reporting, are you thinking about the way that you're structuring the information to be shared out? You know, you write long form pieces, but you also have a very active Twitter account. Um, Yes, definitely. And the way that we approach how we present information um, is actually very much dictated by real life, not 
necessarily by, I mean, you could argue that real life is an information ecosystem, but uh, maybe that's a podcast episode for another day. But um, it's, it's developed outside of these um, online ecosystems. And uh, here's what I mean by that. Um, breaking news very often has very different requirements from um, explanations, for example, or investigations. Um, so, uh, for us, breaking news means we need to get information to people very, very quickly. So, being a disinformation reporter means that during times of um, crisis, uh, breaking news situations, attacks, um, we essentially start looking for false information that fills um, the information vacuum. Um, or maybe that need that that need for information um, as more people are looking to try to figure out what's going on. Um, and because it takes much less time to spread false information than it does to gather and then present accurate information, that's really when um, the disinformation problem, I think, is most crystallized. Um, so the the way that we approach packaging that information is twofold or sometimes threefold actually um we first of all um solicit solicit uh tips and um sort of requests for debunks from our audience and the reason why that's a really important step and i always mention it is because uh because of the way that our social media networks are built, it's just not possible for us to know what we missed, um, to know which communities we're not part of, to know um, if there's information that's targeted to those communities we're not seeing because we just haven't thought of it. Um, so that step is particularly important. Um, and then there's two things we can do. Uh, we do. So one is I start a thread on Twitter that outlines every piece of false information that I see. And that's a really rapid response approach that says, I'm just going to write a sentence and show you an image uh, or a screenshot of the falsehood. And I'm going to let you take it from there. Um, and we even think about how we present that very small, very brief bit of information. Um, there's a lot of worry with disinformation reporters and researchers about amplifying um, false information or bringing it to new audiences. So the way we structure that is we um, make sure to put the accurate information um, first or to the best of our ability. And we usually stamp or uh, cross out or deface the screenshot in some way um, that we share because then uh, if it's picked up by a search engine like Google or Bing or Yandex, uh, people have a visual cue that something is, is, is wrong. Um, and uh, we keep this running po list both on Twitter and we keep it on our website in a very classic sort of BuzzFeed numbers form. And I just think that that's so cool because it's like it's it's a format that BuzzFeed invented early on. Um, and it's a format that we now use for very specific news situations. Um, 
So it's really cool to see that evolution. But often we will also put those debunks on uh, more visual platforms as uh, images or videos. So we will create a, a little slideshow for Instagram or our social team will, will create a slideshow for Instagram. Um, sometimes we'll put together a video. And that's very, very different from when I have an investigation that I've been working on for a few days or a week or uh, something that is a breaking news event but doesn't have that information vacuum that's when you know articles are really sort of the best thing that's when you want a person to sit down and say okay please read the how all of these dots are connecting um so I'm not sure if that really fully answered your question. There's a sort of, it's really interesting to look at how information is presented. Um, but I think that uh, with a lot of newsrooms right now, it's really an important time to experiment because you're not always going to be able to get your reader to sit down and read an in-depth article about one meme, about what, why one meme is wrong. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And thank you so much for kind of taking us through that process, because I think it really exemplifies the kinds of choices that are being made on the supply side, right? Like you have to think about, okay, what is the best format for this information given the particular context of, is it breaking news? Is it not? Is it something that needs debunking immediately? Is it not? You also want to be thinking about what, your readers actually want to engage with and and how that might change depending on the type of story that you're doing and the kind of thing that you're covering so those kinds of decisions that need to be made in this high choice media environment on the supply side are really fascinating one of the interesting bits that when you talk about the supply um it's sort of uh it makes me wonder about how that theory accounts for discovery of new information. Um, and when I ask that, I mean, there's a lot of conversations that we have in terms of how our online media environment is built. So with a social media uh, network, unlike with a publication, for example, you can't necessarily like write to Facebook and be like, Hey, Zach, could you just tell me why my homepage looks the way my homepage looks? Um, whereas that's definitely a question that you would be able to ask a publication, even if it's a digital only publication or the editor of a newspaper or a magazine, if you're looking at more traditional media. So I'm really curious what this theory has to say in terms of how people find the information that they're consuming. And I wonder if it accounts for times of crises as we're in right now. Um, because one of the interesting things about uh, the coronavirus pandemic and the anti-police brutality protests and even before that the global protests that were happening is that um, a lot of these situations put people um, in a place where they need to f search for new information um, from sources that they haven't necessarily accessed before. So if we talk about protests, we see a high adaption of telegram, for example, as a communication methods. You know, we saw it in uh, Ukraine, my home country. We saw it in Hong Kong. We saw we're seeing it in Belarus right now. 
um, which is a very different way of consuming information than, for example, sitting down at your computer uh, or the picking up your phone, let's say, who sits down in front of their computer. We're all lying down. We're all doing this from bed. But it's a very different way of consuming information uh, actively versus passively when, say, you're just like tapping on your Instagram stories and letting them play on a loop until it's 1 a.m. Um, not speaking from experience here at all. <laughs> um, so I wonder how this theory looks at the the way that um, the demand is fulfilled. How does it look at that discovery um, process? So we've got studies that look at activism and advocacy and online engagement. And then we've got studies that are looking at political information consumption, and they don't talk to each other a ton. One of the places where they do talk to each other a little bit is in this idea that you're talking about as discoverability. And one of the uh, concerns that's been raised through research in mostly Western democracies, is a concern that different segments of the population are going to have different media habits and different expectations for what the media that they want to consume should look like. And so we might see a younger demographic, for example, wanting something that is more interactive and that allows them to easily share little clips with their friends and something that, you know, um, you can make into a fun BuzzFeed quiz or into a TikTok or whatever it is. And then maybe there's an older demographic who really likes the comfort of the old style uh, editorial that they are used to reading from their physical newspaper that they now read online. And the expectations there of different formats means that uh, the content itself gets communicated slightly differently to those different populations. And so then there's a question of, are we creating an increasingly fragmented society where people, because they choose to engage with this political content in different formats, they experience it differently and therefore might develop different opinions from it? I do think that uh, um, there's something to the medium argument, but I'm not sure if... If there's a lot of choice that we necessarily get um, in how we get our information. And what I mean by that is I cannot go on Twitter right now and say I would like to only consume posts that are images or videos. No verbal posts, period. Mm -hmm. That's not an option that's available to me. Um, And likewise, you know, I can't go on Instagram and say, I want um, every single resource slide deck out of my feed. Um, I only want to watch entertaining, soothing videos. And I think that when it comes to older populations, um, as you mentioned, a lot of them use Facebook, but the same goes for Facebook. We can't necessarily say, I prefer to read more traditional editorials, even if they're online. Therefore, I would like to not see videos or images. I very much often wonder the the way that these more visual mediums are perceived by populations and whether there is a difference. Um, because uh, a lot of the apps that young people use are very, very 
focused on video. Uh, and I think that you're totally right about that. But it's not like those videos stay on those social mediums, right? How many times have you seen a great TikTok on a medium that's not TikTok, right? Absolutely. Um, they flow through the system. Yes, yes, which is really great because then you don't have to download TikTok and deal with the deal with that. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> but I do wonder sort of how those preferences um, impact the perception of the different types of media that are put in front of us very often without our explicit agreement. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a really interesting and kind of fascinating set of questions. And there's a lot of kind of the jury is out. Certainly from the research, we know that across most age groups, but especially younger age groups, video and images are much preferred. We also know that they tend to elicit emotion. And um, I mean, I know that your research in disinformation, you're no stranger to information being shared through an emotional mechanism, right? Like that's... <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's the number one. Right. And And because image can communicate emotion so clearly, so effectively, so quickly, uh, it becomes a really useful tool if you are trying to attract attention in a high choice media environment where people have tons of other things to choose from. You know, I, I, I also always wonder how people individually deal with information overload. Um, how does that play into their habits and how does that play into their beliefs? Um, and the reason I ask that is because um, our current information ecosystem doesn't allow for a lot of pause. Um, even if we feel like we're able to step away. So something that I often think about is people very frequently ask me for advice on how to tell if something is false on the internet. Fair. Mm -hmm. um, but I always feel like the advice that I have to give is a little bit... Um, imperfect uh, because of the ecosystem that we're in. So if I tell a person to look at when, account, when an account was created or to search a headline, I'm assuming that they have a break from the information ecosystem or are willing to um, sort of go through the extra effort of taking a break in the information ecosystem. But very often, very often it's not the case. Um, I think that's not the case for most of us. We're all doom scrolling um, endlessly. <laughs> um, and if we see a false headline, we generally shrug it off um, before we search for a fact check. So I really sort of, uh, uh, I'm really hungry for better ways to understand how our current high volume ecosystem impacts the way we build our belief system and whether it causes for us to discount a lot of information we come across or um, if that information becomes embedded in us or if it's something in between. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important kind of set of problems to bring up and set of ideas to bring up this idea of information overload that we just are inundated with so much information all the time we can't possibly consume it all 
Um, and, and one of the reasons that social media and search engines have become so popular is because they have developed algorithms to help us deal with that problem. They help us greatly by organizing information for us, which, you know, in another episode, I'll talk about the, the pros and cons of that. But the idea of, you know, even though we've got these tools that help us deal with the um, massive amount of information there is, we also still have a situation where we need to make these choices about what to consume if we're going to take a pause and go and do fact checking or ask a friend or, or read something that might be counter to what we assume. And we know that the vast majority of people uh, don't have time in their day to look at every single thing that comes across their feeds and check it. We do know that people who are particularly politically engaged, people who care a lot about politics, the kind of news junkies, they are actually often doing that kind of work. They're also often the most vocal. So there's like a bit of hope and, and support for like, well, at least they're informed if they're going to yell, <laughs> right? Then there's the people who, you know, they're like, well, I just have to assume that if it's a big enough problem, eventually it'll sort of rise to the top and somebody will tell me about it or my feed will be filled with it eventually. Um, there's kind of this assumption that something like, uh, like what we've seen with the COVID announcements on different social media platforms, you don't have to be following anybody who's talking about what the WHO has said to have had Facebook and Twitter and other tools pop up a little banner at some point being like, hey, this is like the new standards for masks or um, this is the latest news from these authoritative sources. And um, we just sort of see that people have an assumption that eventually something will grab their attention if it's important enough. Whether that's a founded assumption or not is a different question, but we do see that that is one of the strategies people use to deal with this high choice media environment. They deal with it by saying the system hopefully is going to surface what I need to pay attention to. Hmm. But if we're all in different parts of the system, if we have that fragmentation, then we can't really be confident that that is for sure happening. And that's where the kind of democratic fears start to creep in. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> a lot of, Oh, just a lot. Definitely just a lot. <laughs> just a lot. Yeah. Um, all right. I have one last question for you. Can you summarize for me what the high choice media environment is? Um, it's like capitalism for information. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really concise explanation. Okay. I like it. <laughs> Did I get it right? Did I, I get an A? <laughs> you know, it's a good it's a good start to the essay, but I would I would need a little bit of a of Oh, a, I was writing a tweet, sorry. Oh, <laughs> of course, of course. And I should have expected that. Okay. That was our episode on the high choice media environment with BuzzFeed reporter Jane Letvinenko. Ultimately, a high-choice media environment is a system in which there are many options for both supplying and demanding political information and news. Today, we have a high-choice media environment with lots of TV stations, satellite radio, access to online newspapers from all around the world, a crazy number of social media, search engines, messaging apps, and a lot more. 
If you'd like to learn more about the high choice media environment or any other theories and concepts we talked about today, you can find links to more resources in the show notes and at paulcomtech.ca.